Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. If you haven't already gone over to audiblepodcast.com slash risk, you really should check it out. Audible has like thousands, I don't know how many thousands, of audiobooks, concerts, lectures, wonderful stuff for your ears. I'm kind of addicted to it. I get a few audiobooks from them a month. I've been listening to this one this month called um, The Science of Enlightenment by Shinsen Young about what happens to your brain if you meditate long and hard enough. And this, it's a series of lectures. And I swear to you, I am this close to converting to Buddhism just because of listening to this book. But there's all sorts of wonderful things there, including a lot of stuff from people who have been on our show. Margaret Cho, Mark Marin, Michael Ian Black, Sarah Silverman. Check it out. If you like Risk, then you like stories going into the ear canal. And there's a lot more to be found at Audible. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash risk free audiobook free two-week trial and tons to choose from now here's the show Hello, folks. This is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Beautiful Vision behind me now. And uh, if you're new to Risk, I suggest you also check out one of our regular episodes where we'll feature about four to five stories. On Extra Risk, we usually feature just one story or an interview or maybe just some sort of experiment. Today we're going to feature a story by Nancy Sullivan, and this one was especially courageous for her to share. Uh, Risk is always labeled explicit and never really intended for kids, but um, this one in particular is very graphic and disturbing, but we feel it's, it's very important to share. So here is Nancy Sullivan with a story we call Life Worth Living. I was by myself in my campus apartment, laying on my bed, and I was slapping myself in the face over and over and over again. And I wasn't going to class, I wasn't going to my job, I wasn't returning phone calls, I was just slipping away. And, um... I wanted to rest so badly and that feeling turned to wanting to die. I filled up a bathtub with water and I thought if I just take a bunch of pills and pass out in the water I won't have to deal with any of this anymore. 
when I was in the seventh grade, we were going to watch a health class uh, video on sexual reproduction. The energy in the air is just kind of like giddy. Everybody's very giggly about whenever they're talking about penises or they're showing, you know, a diagram or anything like that. And they're showing this, like, scenario of this older man who lives next door to a young girl. And then eventually we're led to believe that he does sexually inappropriate things to her. I have a girlfriend next to me and she whispers into my ear. She's like, oh my god, that's so sick. I can't believe that we're watching this. And so I'm like, yeah, oh, it's just totally wrong. And I don't even look at her. I'm just staring at the screen and I just have this feeling in my stomach. I'm like, oh god, this is so familiar. I um, start to have memories after that point. I grew up in the South, and my um, closest relatives were me and my brother, Tommy, and my cousin, Eddie. And Eddie was a cousin on my mother's side of the family, and we always used to see them when we would go for vacations. He was about 10 years older than me. Everybody thought it was really, really cute because Eddie and I were spending a lot of time together. Wherever he was, I was. What they didn't know is that secretly, although I was pretending to be excited, I was really very scared. I was terribly fond of Eddie, and I really looked up to him, and I looked up to my brother. My brother was only about a year older than me or so, and it was just cool, like, the things that the boys got to go off and do together. Uh, they got to, like, shoot BB guns and, you know, play with knives and stuff like that. And, um, of course, I was interested in anything that they thought was cool. And I remember I was on the couch with Eddie. We were alone. I think the family had gone off to do Christmas shopping. And we're watching this movie in the dark. He's laying behind me. We're on our side on the couch. And he starts to grab me very, very tight. His hands have just sort of like moved down to my waist and then they're between my legs and I'm thinking he's going to be tickling me but it doesn't feel like anything I've ever felt before. It doesn't feel right and so I say what are you doing and he says what don't you like that and I just start crying and I'm like no I don't and he's uh he just says listen you're going to have to keep this a secret. If you tell anybody about this, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And so for years, I just never said anything. There was a time we were, it was me and Eddie and Tommy, we're all playing hide-and-go-seek in my grandfather's house. And Eddie takes me in the back guest room and he locks the door and he pulls down my pants. And then he puts me on the bed face down and he begins to lick my anus. He puts his fingers inside of me, and I'm just crying because I'm so humiliated and so ashamed, and um, I can't say a word, because if I tell anybody, I'll get in so much trouble, and 
he stops and he says, now do it to me. And so he pulls down his pants and he lays on the bed. And I start to copy what he's done. I just remember every single thing about it. I remember even the way it tasted, the way he smells, the tears on my face. I started to stop because I was crying and he would make me do it better. He would say, you're not doing it right, keep going. And I would just continue. And then after it was all over, you know, he puts up his pants and then he helps me put my pants back on. And then I would just run out into the living room and just sort of crouch down next to my dad and just pretend like nothing ever happened. I even started to look at old photo albums. And I remember I was looking through pictures and there's one picture of me in a red dress in my grandpa's backyard. And I remembered wearing that and it was me and Eddie and Tommy and we were going to go um, into the attic that's in my grandpa's barn. He has sort of a barn in his backyard. And he makes Tommy go up the ladder first and um, I'm supposed to go up next so that he can be behind us in case anybody falls. But he had positioned himself so that Tommy wouldn't see that while he was behind me, Eddie was putting his fingers into my panties on the way up the ladder. This one time we were at the beach and I wanted to sleep out on the veranda of this condo that we had rented. I loved the way that the waves would crash onto the beach and how it sounded and the salt water and all the little sea creatures that I could find. And I asked my mom and she said, yeah, sure, you can do it, but uh, somebody needs to take care of you. So Eddie volunteers and he comes out and he helps me set up a little cot for myself. He says, I'm going to go inside and get dressed for bed, but while I'm gone, you need to practice for me. And he had me put my fingers inside of myself and he says, I'll be back. He goes in and he gets changed and everybody's starting to go to bed and the lights get turned out and he comes out there and that was the first night that he tried to put his fully erect penis inside of me. I was very, very small. I was about five years old and it was extremely painful. Things started to get a little rougher from that point. Um, he would go a little further each time. I had this natural ability, though, to sort of meditate through the pain. I would um, focus on something. Like, there was a map that I used to look at in my grandfather's attic, and it was sort of 3D. It was three-dimensional. And I used to imagine that I was looking at the map from a bird's-eye point of view, and that I was flying over the the rivers and the valleys and the mountaintops. And meanwhile, you know, my body is on the floor. I'm on the scratchy carpet and there's sawdust around me and there's spider webs in the corners and it's just got this musty attic smell in the air. Once it was over, I came back to 
reality and I would just go inside and just have the rest of my day. After remembering all of these things and knowing exactly what it was, and it was much more difficult to go and be with that side of the family on vacation. I had trouble sleeping. I didn't like to eat. My family sort of chalked it up to me being a rebellious teenager, that I'm just at that stage in my life that I just didn't want to be near them. But I was genuinely terrified that something would happen to me again, even though the abuse had stopped like years before, I was still very scared that it might, it might happen again. I was also very confused because he just, Eddie seemed to be so normal. He didn't seem to be having any trouble with what had happened. He just pretended like everything was fine near me. And I, I remember just like, if I had to sit next to him on the couch, I didn't like it. I would just sort of like clench my jaw and my hands would sweat and it would just be very, very tense. When I was about 16 or so, Melissa, my older cousin, was getting married, and I was supposed to be a bridesmaid in her wedding, but by this point I had been sort of involved with theater, and I had gotten into this play, and the show dates conflicted with her wedding, and when I learned that not only was I going to be in the wedding, but I was going to have to walk down the aisle with Eddie, I just started to make a plan. I was going to tell my mom that the play was very, very important to me. They they really, really needed me to be in the show. And so I was just going to have to put the wedding off. She was like, well, you know, they can't change the date around. <laughs> You're just going to have to put your family first. I don't understand why you, why you would want to be in a play more than you want to be in the wedding. Don't you love your family? And I, I'm like, yes, of course I love my family but it's just not enough for her and I can't pretend anymore and I can't put it aside any longer and so I say look there's something I haven't been telling you um when I was a little kid Eddie used to molest me and she says are you lying to me and I was so shocked <laughs> And so I say, of course, I'm telling you the truth. But why would I... She's just convinced. She's like, tell me the truth right now. You can't lie about something like this. This is a horrible thing that you're talking about. You have to tell me the truth right now. What's going on? And I'm like, that is the truth. I don't want to be in a dress in a wedding with this awful person that did this awful thing to me. How could you just not believe me? <laughs> and it's just She's there and she's looking at me and I just need so much help from her and she won't give it to me. And she says, look, I'm going to tell you something. The same thing happened to me when I was your age. I was molested by my cousin and I never said anything. 
I just got on with my life, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to suck it up, and you're going to be there for the family. And I just refused. I just said, no, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I need help. We need to tell somebody. You have to help me. And she wouldn't. And, um, eventually she decides, <sighs> she decides that, um, that if I keep it secret, if I lie to the family and I tell them that I'd rather be in the play, that I won't have to be in the wedding. And it's not precisely the best case scenario, but, you know, it gets me what I want, so that's what I did. I remember she made me call Melissa and tell her to just count me out. And to this day, I, I think that Melissa doesn't, she's not very fond of me because of it. Years pass, and I'm just pretending my heart out that I'm the perfect daughter, leading the perfect life, and I'm just happy, and I sing, and I dance, and I do plays, and that everything's fine. I did find a lot of joy in theater. I even went on to college to become an actor. The first year was good. I made some pretty awesome grades. I started partying a lot. I was sleeping around with a lot of guys that were not stellar for me. Doing drugs. Just being a wild child, basically. It gets to the point where I'm thinking to myself, God, something has to change because I don't think I'm going to graduate. I talked to a friend about it and he said that he had been seeing a counselor. And I'm like, oh, that, I just, you know, I don't think I'm crazy. Why would I need to see a counselor? And he's like, look, trust me, you don't have to be crazy to go into therapy. So I gave it a shot. And we just peel back onion layers until we get down to the meat of it. I didn't realize how far that it had affected me. And that how hiding it from my family and being told to keep it a secret was far more damaging, maybe even than the abuse itself. My mom had told me, you know, you're going to break up the family if you tell anybody. But my therapist said this thing to me, I'll never forget it. It just shocked me to death. She says, don't you realize that your family's already broken and it's not your fault? And that was the first time that I ever had to sort of realize that I had been blaming myself for many years, I had just assumed that I was worthless, and I just started to turn all of my anger towards my mom, and we were having these horrible, horrible fights on the phone, and it was just a terrible period of anger. I started to fight with my brother as well. There was one phone conversation we were having. And he didn't understand why I was so angry at everybody and why I was 
picking fights with my mom and you know he's going on about this and I just blurted it out I was like look I was abused when I was a kid and that's why I'm in therapy right now he takes a breath and he his voice just drops very low and he just sounds so heartbroken he goes what did you just say and I said I was molested when we were kids and it was a family member and he just stops and then he comes back on the phone and he says why would you lie to me and I say look I'm not lying to you I'm telling you the truth and he says no it, it can't be true we were always together he was always where you were I was always there too I would have seen something and I'm like look you were a kid you were only a year older than me and there were times when it happened when you were in the room and I told him this story about how um, we had we were alone we were being babysat by Eddie and we had set up a tent in the living room and um, Tommy was playing video games Eddie and I were in the tent and he started to touch me and I didn't want it to happen so I started to crawl away and Eddie grabbed me by the ankles and put his hands over my mouth and I couldn't call for help and it's he just said you're crazy you need help this is sick I can't believe that you're making this up and it's just deja vu all over again and I'm so sick of having to fight and defend myself over something that wasn't my fault. And um, shortly thereafter, I um, remember this was when Hurricane Katrina had just hit New Orleans. And my uncle was down there living right outside of the city. He was by himself. And I was calling just to check on him and see if he was okay. And he's there on the phone with me and um, he's like hey look you know there's somebody else here that wants to talk to you hang on just a second and it's Eddie and he just has this normal conversation with me about house college this is what I'm doing I have a job blah 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 and I'm in the middle of all of this therapy realizing like how much he's hurt me I can tie back the effects of what he's done to me to be indicative of my academic failure you know all this stuff I'm just like furious with him and I can't believe that he's just normal he says to me you know I'm I'm dating this girl she's uh, into theater she does all of this stuff she you know she really might reminds me of you and that just made me feel so disgusted. I just said, look, I gotta go. And I hung up the phone. For the next three days, I just couldn't get any sleep at all. And I don't know when, I don't know specifically the moment it started, but I had begun to think about um, what wouldn't hurt. I just started filling up a bathtub with water. 
I don't even want to leave a note. I don't feel that I owe anything to anybody else. I don't feel that I have to explain myself. And I started lining up all of the pill bottles that I had along the edge of the tub. And hopefully I could just pass out in the water and I would drown. And I wouldn't have to deal with anything anymore. So the tub was full and I turned off the faucet. And then I glanced at a photo of me and two of my best friends. And I thought to myself, what are they going to feel when they hear that I'm gone? I thought, how long is it going to take before somebody finds me? What will I look like when they do? shifted in me at one point I don't it's like I just went into autopilot and then I had my had a phone in my hand and it's like this other person in me is calling this suicide hotline and I'm like look I'm having trouble I might kill myself today I need help and I spent 17 days in a hospital undergoing treatment and psychological evaluation uh, during that time, I lost my job. I had to drop out of school because I had missed so much. And there was nowhere else for me to go. Since I wasn't a student anymore, I couldn't live on campus any longer. And I had to move back in with my mother. I felt very isolated at that time because everybody else was going off and graduating and leaving me behind. But I started going to sessions with this elder gentleman. He asked me, you know, are you taking any medication? And I told him about all of the pills I was taking. And I, I rattled off four different prescriptions. And he, he was like, whoa, 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 how many pills are you taking? And I was like, uh, this, 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 and this. He goes, that's a little extreme. Have you considered stopping the pills? And I was like, uh, no, don't I need them? And he's like, nah, just go ahead and stop. Uh, let it get out of your system and then let me know how you feel. And so I did. This, this guy is listening to me and going through all of these events with me and it just seems like he really cares and then he really hears me and he, he understands what I'm going through um, in a way that, that reminds me of how my father used to take care of me. My father died when I was when I was younger, when I was about 12. And um, he always told me, you know, you don't have to do anything you want to do. And, you know, you just, you've just got to be yourself. And this was like some of the same advice that this guy is giving me. And it just brings me to a place of stability that I honestly thought I wasn't ever going to achieve again. We even discussed that he thought, you know, maybe my brother really does believe me and that just deep down inside nobody wants to believe that their greatest fears have come true and it took me years to come to that realization so I can't expect him to just just shift overnight to my side and if it never happens I need to be okay with that 
which is a hard pill to swallow. And I had to learn how to forgive my mom. I was very angry that she didn't take care of me and she didn't, you know, get me the help that I wanted. And I, I would just keep on going about like, well, if she had, then I would have done this and everything would have been so much better. And, and he, he says to me, since you can't change it, what are you going to do from here on out? You know, I just had to learn to distance myself from them. I'm an adult now. I was a little less hopeless about the future. I started to believe that I could finish school and that I could become somebody and that my abuse didn't have to define me. And then the world was sort of open to me. Life is much better for me now than it was then. I don't live at home anymore. I don't even live in the same state anymore. I'm trying my best to pursue my dreams here. I have my friends all around me again. And I do go back and visit every now and then. And it's a very interesting experience for me because sometimes when I'm in a plane and I'm headed back to New York, it feels like I'm headed back towards a home that's been there for me all along. I definitely feel like I'm carried towards a life that's worth living. Well, that is it for this week's show. This is Broke for Free behind me now. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Where else can you get just quite this kind of uncensored, unaffected... uh, This is really art made by the people for the people. This is not, you know, anything with any corporate interference. But I'll tell you, we really need your help. Uh, As you know, Risk is having our big fundraiser right now. It goes to November 16th. It's at Indiegogo.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. And it's called Keep Risk Running. Frankly, we're not very close to our goal right now. And and it all ends on November 16th. So please go to Indiegogo.com, keep risk running, and give what you can. There's a lot of amazing prizes there. We're building a storytelling school. We are putting together uh, touring shows. And we want to be doing more and more with this podcast. But right now, we really need help to... uh, keep this thing keep it running and really get it on its feet in a in a major way lay the foundations for something that can last well for generations is our intention follow us on twitter and facebook at risk show 
Find out more about our classes at thestorystudio.org. Learn when our next live shows and free story slams are happening at risk-show.com. Today is the day, folks. Take a risk. <laughs>